have Bibles, we, look, we introduced this passage last week. We're going to dive into a few more of the particulars this week of Romans chapter 9, verses 14 to 24. Friends, hear the word of the Lord. Paul writes, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? So that's the first part in terms of defining the doctrine of election. The question here is, is God fair? Is God righteous? And the practical side of that is, can God be trusted? When Paul writes, is there injustice on God's part? He says, by no means. And now appealing to the Old Testament, he says, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends, not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded? Say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called? not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Let's pray. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but your word stands forever. And your word, all scripture, is breathed out and inspired by you. It is your word, it is not mine. And it's useful to teach us, to train us, to correct us, to discipline us. And so, Lord, may you show us its usefulness. May we come to see you maybe in some newer ways. I know I'm totally reliant and dependent upon you. May we all, even as we hear this, even as there's things we may struggle with, may we depend upon you to show us what you desire and want to show us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me ask you a question, and be honest with me. We're all about fairness, aren't we? We want what's fair. I bet if I sat in a living room with some of you watching a University of Georgia football game, not that they ever lose, but if they lost, I guarantee you it'd be the ref's fault, wouldn't it? It's not fair. I can invite you to my living room. In fact, I'm excited. I had to do this illustration this morning because it's two weeks till pitchers and catchers report. I get very excited this time of year because Yankees baseball is coming back. So if you want to have fun, if you want to know your pastor is a sinful man who needs the grace of Jesus, come over and watch a Yankees game with me sometime. Because they never throw a ball. They're all, you know, they never... It's always the umpire's fault. The Yankees have not won a championship since 2009, and I guarantee you they should have won the championship in 2017. They were cheated out of it 
by the sign-stealing scandal of the Houston Astros. See, it's all about fairness. We're all about justice. I grew up in a family, I was the oldest of three boys, three brothers, and it was a constant refrain around our house. It's not fair. Now again, in all honesty, I'm the oldest, I got away with the most. I have, you know, my younger brothers would always say, why does Jeff get to do that? Why is Jeff not in trouble? I tell them today they were right. I knew how to milk the system pretty well. Fairness is an issue of justice. And we're, when we're defining election, we have to do so. And I know that's a $64,000 theological term. And I'll get to it in a few minutes. But I want to encourage us, keep it in context. I have to stick to what the Word of God is saying here. And in this particular section, this particular passage, what Paul is doing is defending the justice and the righteousness of God. He is speaking against the charge, against the objection that God is not fair. That God is not just. That's why verse 14 says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? The rest of the passage is saying, by no means is there injustice on God's part. Let me tell you why. And he's going to give two reasons why. The testimony of the story and the logic of the story. Look with me at verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, and of course he's picking up with it because up through verse 13, he's going through, and these are folks, remember when this was written, okay, first century, they didn't have the New Testament writing, the full Bible wasn't put in a bound form the way we have it today. They didn't have iPhones or iPads where you could pull it out. What they had at this point was the Old Testament. That was the scriptures they were familiar with. So Paul is making his case by alluding back to the Old Testament. He's already talked about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Well, friends, if you're biblical scholars, what comes in the biblical story after Genesis? Exodus. And who's the lead character in Exodus? Moses. So Paul is going through the story of God, and he says, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh was a major character in the Moses story in the Exodus, for this very purpose I've raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Okay. There are many controversial statements here, statements that can be misunderstood, statements that can be misapplied. I said this last week, we need to approach this with much care and much humility. Yes, Paul is asserting quite clearly the doctrine of election. And here's what election means. Here's how it's defined. It means if we belong to Christ, if we're reconciled to God, if we are adopted as his child, if we have all the blessings of salvation, it is due to God's choice and will, not our own. It means that our salvation, our reconciliation to God is totally dependent on God. It is His choice of us and not our choice of God. Now we spoke last week why it can't be our choice of God. 
or our autonomous choice of God. And that's because of our condition. Our condition is that we are born in sin, and Paul puts it this way in Ephesians chapter 2, you are dead in your trespasses and sin. And so if you're dead, what can a dead person do? Choose! Come on! And I'm not trying to make light of it, but this is the logic of it. And so if we're going to believe, and yes, it requires a response of faith. Election is not denying and it's not negating faith, the response of turning to God. What it is saying is something has to happen prior. Something has to happen first. And that is God has to choose to give us the ability to believe on him. So he makes us alive. It's called regeneration. See, this is, pretend this is theology class. He makes us alive and he gives us the ability to believe and then we can respond. What do we experience? Responding. But if we've responded, it's because God has done a prior work in us. Praise God. And we're going to see that part of the practicality of it. Now, if we're seeing that we would never or we could never choose God, so it's God's choice of us that determines salvation, one of the things that that says is, huh, well, wait a second. That's not fair. So God doesn't choose everyone? Well, let's look at the topic of God's justice for a second. One of my favorite writers, one of my favorite commentators on this is a man by the name of David Martin Lloyd-Jones. Listen to how he puts it. He says, Paul is saying here, if you want to bring in the notion of justice, if you really want what's fair, very well, you will get what's coming to you. You will get what you deserve. You will get your wages, and the wages of sin is death. If God's salvation were totally a matter of justice and righteousness, all would be damned. Nobody has any claim upon God's mercy. The fact that anybody has ever received mercy is entirely because of the character and nature and goodness and kindness and benevolence of God. Lloyd-Jones writes, the real mystery is not that everybody is not saved, but that anybody is saved. The mystery of God is God knows, owes nothing to anybody. The text clearly tells us, verse 16, so then it, meaning salvation, depends not on human will. If it depended on human will, nobody could do it. You don't have the ability. That was the topic of last week's sermon. But on God who has mercy. And let's remember something else. For mercy to be mercy. Think about what the definition of mercy is. Mercy is help for the helpless. It's not help for those who have some ability. It's not help for those who are middle class in spiritual virtue. It's help for the dead. It's help for the powerless. It's help for the helpless. And so for mercy to be mercy, it must be 100%. Not 50%, not 75%, 100% dependent and reliant upon God. That's why our condition 
is the starting point. And let's remember something else. Nowhere in the scriptures is this a doctrine where we're somehow to beat up non-believers with it or show how smart we are to our fellow believers, kind of like proving, aren't we enlightened? I've heard writers put this, when we were in our cage stage, meaning angry in terms of this, that is not the point of this doctrine at all. The practical side, and this is where I'm shooting for the fences here, if we're going to be biblical, this with this doctrine, we need to remember that the reason it's in the scripture is to lead us to worship. The point of this doctrine is to overwhelm us with the facts. Again, not why is not everybody saved? Why am I saved? Why would God open my heart to believe? My friend Scotty Smith, who is a pastor, would say we should be overwhelmed and marinate in gospel astonishment. That's what I want for my heart, and that's what I want for this church. For us to be absolutely blown away by the goodness and the glory and the greatness of the grace of God. That we would come each and every Sunday in our broken state, our fragile state, our hurting state, no matter what state we are in, and hear about the glory of Jesus. That's why Paul, and I love the letters of Paul, but that's why Paul, and let me say, Paul was all about worship and not about grammar. Because especially in the original, when you read Paul, he's like one giant run-on sentence. And you want to know why he's one giant run-on sentence? He begins thinking about the grace and mercy of Christ. And he is just overwhelmed. He is just blown away. So, for example, in Ephesians chapter 1, and there's no commas and there's no periods, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ, even as, and here's election, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world in order that we might be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption as his sons through Jesus Christ, according to his purpose, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Paul is not arguing about fairness and justice and free will and autonomy. He is overwhelmed. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us, shown favor upon us, thought about us, cared about us with every spiritual blessing in Christ. So that's why even when, and here's Paul alluding back to the story of Moses, when he says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, I will have compassion on whom I have compassion, and he's giving the testimony here, there's a couple things we need to pick up here. First of all, when he's talking about Pharaoh, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I've raised you up, that I might show my power in you, God's not being unfair there. Because what was Pharaoh when God raised him up? Pharaoh was already a sinner. Pharaoh's heart was already hard. Again, the wonder, we were born with hard hearts that turned away from God. The wonder is not that, why should God not show mercy to Pharaoh? The wonder is, why did God show mercy to us? Why did God show mercy to us? 
And then something else recognized this when he says, for this very purpose I've raised you up, that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Did you catch that? The purpose is proclaiming the name, the glory of God. Being missional is all about proclaiming the glory of God. That we would be so about, that's what it means, may I never boast, except in the Lord Jesus Christ. That we would be so overwhelmed and overcome with glory that it would flow from us and we would be about proclaiming the glory of God. Not obsessed with all the questions about the philosophical nature. Part of me wants to go, and I'll pick on myself for a second. When I start to think about the philosophical questions concerning this, I just want to go, stop it, Jeff. Knock it off. That's not why it's in the Scripture. It's in the Scripture to draw us to worship which leads to the logic of the story. Look with me at verse 19, and he says, You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Again, what's going on here, and Tim Keller has the following statement. He says, here he's saying that God made us and that therefore he has rights of ownership. Some, many of you, I've lived here now just short of two years, a year and a half, and I am blown away by the talents so many of you all have. Painting, photography. I told my friend Bill Benzer I was going to choose him this morning Woodworking. Have you ever seen any of the woodworking Bill Benzer does? It's absolutely beautiful and it's amazing. Now, here's the logic, and this is what Paul is getting here. Does the wood have the right to say to Bill, um, Bill, excuse me, you're doing it wrong. You're messing up here. I didn't want to be a bowl. I wanted to be this. That's the logic of what's going on here. One of the things we have to realize is God is God and we are not. And we don't understand everything about God. We don't understand everything. Which is why Paul says, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? And again, what are we to do with this? How does this transform us? How does this change us? Again, if we understand, rather than trying to figure everything out, that if we got what we deserve, if God were actually fair, we would get our wages, that we deserve death, hell, damnation, then the fact that God shows us mercy ought to produce galvanizing worship and a humble love towards others. Tim Keller writes, Nothing can fill you with so much praise and joy as to realize that not one molecule of credit for your salvation belongs to you, but to the Lord. If I can take any of the credit, think about this. If it was up to us, we freely chose to accept God, then we should be singing, praise us from whom all blessings flow. But because it depends 1,000%, not one molecule of the credit goes to us, we praise God and God alone from whom all blessings 
flow. Keller writes, since I can take no credit, God gets all the praise. And think about it. God has chosen, he's elected. What is election all about? It's not just about individual. God's not up there play, playing eeny, meeny, miny, mo. What he did was he chose, and this is the testimony of the rest of Scripture, he chose for there to be a bride for his son. Talk about an intimate relationship. God the Father has given a bride, and the church of Jesus Christ is the bride of Christ. We are Jesus' bride. He's enamored with us. And our being, a part of the bride of Christ, has nothing to do with us, completely by the sovereign will, grace, and mercy of God. And think about what it cost Jesus, what it cost God, to make us his bride. He was the Lamb of God, slaughtered and slain for our salvation. He laid down his life. That's why the scriptures elsewhere say, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Obviously, we're not going to lay down our life literally or physically, most of us, like that. But our love for our wives is to be modeled and patterned after Christ's love for us. He gave himself up for us on the cross. Friends, if we got what we deserved, where would we be? But God elected, he chose for Jesus to get what we deserve. God made him who knew no sin to be sin. That doesn't, he knew no sin. That means he got what we deserved. The wages for sin is death. Jesus received that judgment. Jesus received the judgment of God so that in him, do you know what we get? What he deserved the righteousness of God. And the more we think about that, the more we marinate in that. I love Scotty Smith's words. The more we absolutely soak in the glory of the gospel. There should never be a debate about election, predestination, or anything. We should just absolutely oh, worship the king, all glorious above, oh, gratefully sing, his wonder and his love. Can you imagine that he loves us like that? I can't. That's beyond imagination for me. I'd almost say it's too good to be true. And yet it's true. And friends, I want you to taste that. That's my heart. I, want, I want, wish for every single one of us to taste the goodness of Christ, the mercy of Christ towards you. Let's pray.